Hey, Bitch Talkers. Welcome to Bitch Talk. We are at yet another film festival. This time it's at SF Indie Film Fest. Yeah, we're talking about San Francisco love today. And uh, we're starting off with Love Letter Templates with the writer and director, Joselito Sering. And then we have a, an SF short called Sammy and Quinn by the Coppola family, Christopher and Bailey, will have on the show for you. Both very different interviews, but uh, we dive deep into life in San Francisco. So enjoy the show. Welcome to Bitch Talk, booze interviews straight from the heart of San Francisco. I'm Erin. That's Ange. Hi. That's Char. Hello. You can find us at bitchtalkpodcast.com where you can sign up for our monthly e-news. For behind-the-scenes videos and two-minute clips of our interviews, head to our YouTube channel and subscribe. You can find us every other Thursday morning at 9.30 a.m. at bff.fm. And if you like what you hear... Rate and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. For the love of God, do it. It really helps. We are here at SF Indie Film Fest, and we are bringing you the producer, writer, director, editor, and you also scored the film, Love letter templates, Joselito Sering, aka Joe Searing. Welcome to Bitch Talk. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much, you guys. I'm really uh really honored to be here. You're a bit of an overachiever, Joe. I mean, you just all you're just gonna do everything. You just <laughs> I mean I, I, and this I would say I'm an overachiever if I had gotten this done in five years. <laughs> but look, there's there's no time frame on independent film. Really. It's called yeah. indie film fest, yeah. yeah. And and it took you 20 years to complete this film. I, how did you stay focused and, and eyes on the prize in 20 years? So much changes in your life within that time span. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I have to first admit uh, it was 20 years from the first thought, but it took about like uh, from 2004 to 2009 of, uh, of uh, producing footage and music for it. And then uh, the gap from that point from 210 to about 220 had a lot to do with, uh, I had focused more on doing other things, living life, doing, you know, working. Um, I had a family and all those things. So it kind of like really took me away from working on it as a, pa a passion project. Mm -hmm. Uh, but it wasn't until about like two, three years ago, maybe four years ago that I started to really ramp up. And then this, the most recent two years had been um, everything that I had done in post-production to really complete the film. So in a way, I, I kind of, as soon as I decided, okay, this movie is going to happen and it's going to finish, um, I made my own money <laughs> to finance it. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I think um, I was able to complete it with uh, some inspiration also from like some life lessons that had happened in the uh, mm -hmm. past two years that actually pushed me to finish this film. And um, so I will admit, when I say 20 years, it was only from when I was like a total pipe dream of like, oh, I want to make a movie. <laughs> <laughs> that was 20 years ago. Well, can you can you dive into the to the origin story of this film? Because when I was reading about it, too, there is there's a mention, excuse me, <clears throat> there's a mention of MySpace, which I was like, oh, <gasps> I got a little excited about MySpace for a minute. So can you talk about that? 
Sure. Um, so around 2003, 2004 was when everybody uh, kind of jumped from like LiveJournal or Friendster and then into mm-hmm. MySpace, right? Mm-hmm. And if you were already in the kind of like vlogging or, you know, if you're into blogging, if you're into, um, at that point, I think HTML was just really catching up and everyone was like, you know, doing a lot of neat things. There was also a lot of like that kind of blogging scene of folks that were really into the, the music stuff. Right. And we all started really connecting on MySpace for the music and for the scene in a way. And um, what had happened was we started to, of course, find out about where the parties are, <laughs> you know, and, uh, you know, it was it, it was kind of funny because the way I discovered uh, a lot of the friends that I started to make was because I was just simply on a bus and saw um, on Fell Street, a bunch of people with dyed black hair. And I was like mm. thinking, wow, everyone's got black hair here. <laughs> it it was like you know it was like a it was like the asian student union you know or something like that (laughs) not everybody was asian you know right everyone had but everyone had black hair and um and i remember like thinking that was really funny and then after a while i started to see the same people um and uh you know i started kind of you know just making friends and at one point around 2000 maybe 2000 three um i was at uh in vegas for uh, the wwd magic trade show it's like a fashion show back then there was a lot of like up and coming um fashion stuff and we were all kind of like intertwined right and so i was up there and while i was up there i I met uh some folks after they were playing danzig right Mm -hmm. (laughs) and and i was like right after like some like you know some beats they start playing danzig i was like what is going on here so I was I looked over and it was like um it was these guys that I had met in San Francisco at one point it was uh Richie Panic and uh, Jeffrey Paradise who was at that time throwing a party called Frisco Disco and then they they started kind of inviting me to their parties which is a totally different scene than the other the MySpace scene that I was going for but what we started to do was started to kind of cross over with like those parties you know with the rock and roll DJ parties with um a lot of the guys that and gals that were totally into like the emo stuff (laughs) and and so we started attending these parties as soon as everyone started uh turning 21 and all and and i think that was kind of like the crossover then we started to really utilize myspace as a way to really promote the the underground parties and really connecting and i think that really did help us in finding each other because at that point uh, if you if you could remember around that time um there was the the dot-com bomb had just happened and a lot of people had just moved out of the city and the ones that were left um, were it, I guess uh, it, this was like it, rave was really happening in the nineties. Right. And as it's like moving into the two thousands, a lot of like the, you know, like go home, kill yuppies type of bike messenger folks yes. started, you know, started <laughs> throwing parties too, but mm-hmm. they were DJing, they were DJing, uh, heavy metal and and rock stuff and a lot of 80s stuff and I think that's when um, it really started to kind of cross over and I, there was a resurgence for that sort of like 80s sound also along with like the um, the kind of like the Britpop sound that was like coming up and we all kind of connected on that so MySpace for a long answer uh, <laughs> it, it became really as a hub for us to kind of like connect and find each other and we started to really promote utilizing like uh, the uh, the power of social media at that time, which was yeah. my, I know it sounds so weird. Yeah. 
it was powerful. And thank you, Joe, for that backstory, because that's really why I wanted to cover this film in particular was partying in San Francisco in the 2000s. That was my era. I, I moved in 99. I was in college. And just it was that time where you just you you take the bus to one party in one part of town and then you get a call from another friend and they're like, hey, so-and-so's DJing, come over here. Okay. And then we walk and along the way you make friends and you share a joint and then you go to the next party. And it was it was just so freeing. And that that just I, I can't see that happening today with the state that the city is in. So can you talk about how the city has evolved from that? And, and, you know, we can be old people that say in my day, it was better, but it really was. Um, <laughs> and, and how, was. how boring this film would be if it was told by the now. Same people that age now. Yeah. <laughs> that, is, that, that is very, that's very funny because that was very true. That was my experience too. We would bust to parties and then we'd walk all over the city and there was five, six parties to go to every mm -hmm. night. Um, and then once everyone started to kind of like turn 21 and older and start drinking, everyone would just show up at the, uh, at the bars, the dive bars around midnight. It was always midnight because it would be dead until about like 1130, maybe. And then midnight, it's like popping, blah, and then it gets really crazy. Mm -hmm. And then the after parties happen until the morning. Mm -hmm. So, and sometimes um, you end up at the end up. That was another rare occasion <laughs> that was like, Ooh, anyway, carry on. <laughs> Those were definitely the days. Um, and I have to think, though, that uh, there is a lot of people that were moving into the city, uh, just like you at that time, too, you know, where they might have also kind of uh, missed out like what it was just like in the 90s here. You know, there was the parties were hardcore. The raves were hardcore. They were like, um, I remember like the some of the 90s parties is a little different. Like you'd have to um, buy a certain something from a a 7-Eleven and then the guy would, you know, then ring a buzzer and then there would be a door. You go downstairs and there's like a fat party. <laughs> it was like that kind of stuff, you know, mm -hmm. that stuff's not going to happen anymore. I don't think unless people are using it to defy these um, COVID restrictions, you know, people mm -hmm. will come together, they'll still party. They, you know, they didn't care about getting sick before. They're not going to care about getting sick now. Um, but I, I would say, uh, for the new generation, the younger folks, because remember, we were in our like 20s, right, or 30s at the time. Um, and I think those that uh, generation or that population of people um, have different temperaments as to what they find to be a good time nowadays. You know, and I think they some of them will continue to party um, and and defy uh, sensibility, social sensibilities. Right. Mm. I think that'll still happen. And then others have like taken on a, a different approach, you know, and um, I think a majority of people are really stuck on um, maybe socializing online more. And, um, and that's not to say that like, uh, you know, direct face-to-face -face interaction is not going to happen again, but it seems like the younger generation finds more solace in that outlet than it is, let's say, um, you know, like, and I think this is going to pass because I think everyone's just like, you know, waiting to go out, <laughs> you know, yeah. like I've, I've been um, only this like past week. I've been very paranoid about like getting sick because I didn't want to miss the uh, the premiere next week. 
you know, everything mm. I've been looking forward for, you know. Mm-hmm. But my friends were like all teasing me, like on the day of, you know, it'll be all mosh pits and orgies, you know. <laughs> because it's like <laughs> <laughs> we're just like after that, we're like, we don't care if we get sick. But wow. we do care. We do care. But you right. Know. Yeah. Well, um, I, I want you to talk about scoring the whole film because there's a definite um, sound to it mm-hmm. and it's a bit nostalgic. So if you can talk about that. Well, OK, so the the genesis of the movie was really a, a way for me to promote my solo music career. Um, I had already uh, been playing in the music scene in San Francisco since the 80s. You know, I was in punk metal bands and we used to um, open up for some pretty like big bands at the time i don't know if you guys had caught uh bands like faith no more oh yeah mm-hmm. yeah so we had uh, but you know these are in the 80s like you know faith no more was like a kind of like a one of those uh kind of like punk bands that started to cross over to the mainstream mm-hmm. and um and there was so, like band like this death angel i don't know if you guys are familiar with them as well but um but they're big now and uh, there was a lot of bands that were playing in the 80s and i was very involved in that scene that punk metal scene um so i think like uh when my the band that i was in called demented we used to open up for like punk bands like exploited gbh um bad brains you know we, we used yeah. to open up for all those bands and then like we were kind of like known as like this sort of cool um opening band there's like four filipinos and one irish dude and we would play like <laughs> sounds you know, great yeah it's like <laughs> I'll, I'll let you guys in on it sometime um, please do <laughs> and uh and so we were we were developing and um and at one point when it was time to cross over um the music scene from the bay area started to shift and more and more it started to go towards up seattle Right. And and so there is like more bands that started to kind of focus on that sound. And our sound in particular was more like L.A., like it was like Jane's Addiction, Mm -hmm. Deftones, stuff like that. In fact, Deftones uh, ended up being the one to actually rise above, you know, and like really uh, make it out there. And then um, (laughs) uh, and so there there is. there's this sort of like Solomon's too, because half of the band after we broke up ended up becoming Native Elements, which is a, a reggae. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. I've seen them live. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Cool. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, so the, the drummer and the bassist and the um, and other people from the band ended up doing Native Elements, continued uh, to do Native Elements, whereas I had decided to go back to school and um, I started. Um, studying a lot, you know, film and electronic music at first before I switched to anthropology and ultimately philosophy. This is like my my scholastic uh, journey. Um, but the whole time I was still making music um, and sort of envious at the fact that my other buddies continued to play. Mm-hmm. And um, so I started to just really uh, produce everything on my own and um, started to create uh, compositions, you know, electronic stuff especially uh being very involved in the in the the drum and bass and um and uh i guess you could call the rave scene yeah Mm -hmm. um before dubstep they'll have to say so i say drum and bass (laughs) Uh, and uh uh and house and techno and all that stuff so i I loved all that stuff um and the other guys decided to go into more like the dub sound and i started to do a lot more start to explore a lot more of like the um, the crazier sounds, um, you know, uh, I was really into post-punk still, I'd grown up in, 
you know, sort of like the kind of like the electro scene also being mm-hmm. going out with a lot of girls that were into that at the time too. So um, uh, that was kind of meshing all together and I was creating all that music. And then ultimately I realized, you know, it's really hard for like somebody to kind of come up with all the music on their own because my friends, they're able to tour because they're in bands, right? I didn't have a band. <laughs> mm. So I was just like, you know what? I'm going to make a movie instead. <laughs> sure. Complete 180. Yeah, why yeah. not? <laughs> well, congratulations on this 20-year feat and uh, for making it to SF Indie Film Fest. It's been really fun talking to you. We've been speaking with Joselito Sering of Love Letter Templates. And I'm going to go ahead and say it's nice to meet you again because we met at a party in the 2000s. <laughs> yeah. I'm certain. Or maybe we were on the bus together. Maybe yeah, you were the one that shared your joint with me. Who knows? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Cool, cool. Maybe we could do that again and hopefully soon. I hope so. That's great. Yeah. Hello, Mid Talkers. We are covering SF Indie Fest 2022, and we have the director and one of the stars from the short, Sammy and Quinn. We have director Christopher Coppola and his son, Bailey Coppola. Welcome to the show. Happy to be here. Thank you. Yeah. Christopher, if you can, can you introduce uh, the audience to Sammy and Quinn? Yeah, sure. Uh, Well, first off, um, it was part of a class that was going to have my students watch a professional feature made based on Cervantes' Don Quixote. (laughs) We were going to shoot it in Spain, but it was during that major COVID year. Yeah. And uh, and then it, the, the money wasn't really there in terms of the Spaniards saying they had money. <laughs> so I had to, I, it happens in film all the time, but uh, I had to figure out something because my course description said, you're going to be able to watch a professional filmmaker make a film. And so I had to move quickly as well, we're going to have to do a short, it's going to just be me shoot and I got to find two reliable actors, well, my, my sons. And, uh, and we're going to do it differently. We're not going to do, uh, you know, we're going to really focus on taking the, the uh, symbols and the, you know, the, the messages of uh, uh, Cervantes' Don Quixote and applying it to something today. And my students learned a lot, but they also got to uh, participate because uh, in the Cervantes, uh, he uses novellas to steer the story, novels within the big novel. So I said, let's use dreams and I'll have my students make the dreams based on some very strict criteria if they want to stay in my professional film. And I had uh, music students, composers and Mm. film students. And man, they they did terrific. And they're in the movie and it couldn't be happier. Actually, one of the students is going to be at the Q&A tomorrow at the noon, the noon screening. Um, and, and now that you've brought it up, you, you shot in the in the heat, I guess, of the pandemic. Oh, yeah. Um, how was that for your actors? And Bailey can jump in, too. And then uh, was it easier? Was it was it harder since you're I'm guessing your local guy um, shooting in San Francisco at that time, since it was a little bit more quiet? Well, well, the, the COVID thing, you don't want to show that. Uh, because it dates your movie, mm-hmm. uh, unless it's about COVID. So you got to be very careful. Uh, my little, littlest son, youngest son, Dexter, didn't like being out there. Mm-hmm. He didn't like people without masks. It was a, it was a serious issue for him. 
Bailey. <laughs> that, that's funny. What, yeah, no. what does Bailey think? <laughs> no, it's no, no, I'm not an anti-mask, anti-vaxxer. I always put on the mask wherever I go. But, you know, there's occasions you get in an Uber, you go into a store and they really don't care whether you do it or not. And in that case, you know, it's OK not to wear one. Well, that caused some tension, which we used between the brothers. Ah. <laughs> I would have to say. Uh, it's probably the hardest film I've ever made, uh, working with my sons in uh, seven <laughs> days. Uh, exactly, uh, you know, the arguing offset, the arguing during a very small crew. Um, originally, it was just going to be me shooting, doing sound because we wanted to keep it contained. Mm -hmm. No way. Absolutely didn't work. So I had to bring in a professional cinematographer who did great, uh, but it was very small. Uh, in terms of San Francisco, uh, I've shot a lot here um, and because I'm a teacher, but uh, I'm really good with the police. They really like me. So uh, I get away with a lot. <laughs> and so, so if I'm shooting and they go, well, who's this? I go, it's just me. Oh, OK, no, no problem. You don't have any. Per well, I better not share this. But anyhow, uh, <laughs> you, have a, you have a good relationship. I have a very good relationship with the police and uh and also, I have students working on the film, so it's always somewhat educational. Like I have made two feature films that that have had San, you know, in San Francisco uh, with a larger crew, but always the same thing. You know, hey, this is great. Do what you got to do. And I always have a cameo of Cafe Trieste, which is like my home away from yep. home. Yep. Mm -hmm. So so in all my professional films, and you'll see it in Sammy Quinn, there's Cafe Trieste. And every student film that I make with my students, like a class film, we always have Trieste. It's just a done deal. Trieste has got to be in the movie. I love that. Yeah, um, I'm glad you brought up working with your sons. And, and I was going to talk about that. Um, it, it, it's great that you use the tension because it really, you know, <laughs> they needed that in the film yeah. to have this tension. Yeah. But, but um, Bailey, maybe you can talk about what it was like being directed by your dad. And, and do you plan on joining forces again in the future? Well, I mean, if it's bitch talk, I guess anything goes. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. But... Please spill do. the beans, spill the beans. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you know, it's always a pleasure. You know, we've, we've done some good work. You know, obviously I need to get my own thing going, get, you know, increasingly comfortable working with other people. But, you know, if he asked me to do something, I'm probably always going to say yes. You know, I, I don't want to say, oh, I'm roped into it. But, yeah, I can't really say no to Christopher Coppola. Hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> Uh, you know I don't. You know I don't like you saying it. it's pops, Papa or pops. Both no freaking first name basis or last name basis, son. Yeah, no, we actually we actually did a feature film called Sacred Blood, which was a you know had Michael Madsen in it, and he played the lead and of the young man. And he was great. So he's a very talented actor. You know, I'm just sort of working with him. Um, you know, to help and blossom with what acting is, and he's very good, but. So it's not just, you know, a director, it's someone that really believes in his potential. Uh, but I also know the business and how cruel it is and how how uh, it's not nice. It's not forgiving. <laughs> well, what's I mean, what's a good example of a famous director that would always work with his his son or sons? Well, I mean, you know, Francis worked with Sophia. That didn't go too well. Uh, Godfather <laughs> three. Uh, he all, he works with Roman a lot as a second unit director, but I, I uh, that's a good one. That's a good one. I mean, Houston, 
John Houston might have worked with Michael, and and uh, I think so. I think so. Prizzy's honor, um, but uh, you know, they're, they're some of the families. I mean, there's a. It's like we can look at each other, and Bailey will know what I'm looking at him for, uh, and I know how to. I know how to trigger things, like set the stage and poke my son Dexter so that it pokes Bailey, um, and uh, you know, so there's things that I can do uh, with my sons. But also, you know, they were going to, you know, they didn't get paid. It was, we made it for nothing. And yeah. I what? Said, no. Well, they didn't get paid. <laughs> no, for paid with love. Paid yes. with fatherly love. Fatherly love. <laughs> but he did get paid on uh, Sacred Blood and he may be paid. Well, if I do this movie, he'll get paid quite a bit on my next film. Yeah. I mean, Sacred Blood, I, I only made 120 a day. Well, that's the deal with SAG. <laughs> Bailey, that's the deal with SAG. If your film is under 300K, you only have to pay the actors 120. Wow. If it, go, if it goes over 300, then you got to pay them 400. Okay. So why would I do that? Why would they, they'd want that money on the screen. And if the money's <laughs> on the screen, son, it's better for you as an actor. So that's just part of the deal, but you got paid what SAG said you should be paid. I mean, let's just. No, I no, I, no, I know. I used right. to work in San Francisco with an environmental group and the people there said, hey, you're probably going to make more money doing this than uh, acting. <laughs> well, you never know. You never know. Yeah, man. it's it's a crapshoot. Yeah. Um, I did want to dig into the to the macro level of the storyline, which is sure. mental health. Yeah. And, and there are notes about your mother. And I know that she just recently passed. Correct. And she also dealt with chronic mental illness. Can you can you talk about that yeah. part of the storyline? Yeah, it's huge. Sure. It, it's big. And I, I, I grew up with a lot of I mean, in our family, there's some serious. Well, some serious and not as serious. But my mom was very serious uh, and a uh, beautiful woman, great dancer. Um, and I uh, never really got to you know the right understanding of mental health back in the you know, mm -hmm. the late 60s, they didn't quite understand. Um, and they still don't. <laughs> it's still a stigma. Right. But uh, I wanted to show uh, in this film, especially family, that you can't give up. You, know, you can't. And, and you got to protect yourself, obviously, because if you're not taking care of yourself, you can't take care of others. But I wanted to show like this unconditional love of a little brother that's trying to help his brother who actually has, you know, some mental health, uh, the character, mental health issues um, with like demons in his mind, like, like Don Quixote. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, but it takes his little brother, you know, to help find it, to help find himself. And that doesn't mean it's gonna not come back. I mean, a lot of people say, well, Christopher, you're saying that that unconditional love will heal. I go, well, no, I'm not saying that. I'm saying it helps, it gives them a, a moment of, uh, of breath you know, to feel like you got your feet on the ground. So, so uh, you know, that was part of it. I really wanted to show that. And my, my son, Dexter, really showed that. And the fact that Bailey's character kind of really needed his brother to pick him up showed that. And a little humor, eating the burger, eating the yeah. hamburger. <laughs> you know, you got to have some humor. Uh, always, always. Here's, here's Dexter. Oh, there oh, he is. Cute. <laughs> Well, that's he's much younger now. Now he's 13. He's almost as tall as Bailey and Bailey hates this. But I think I think Dexter could take you down, Bailey. <laughs> take you down. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, if you're going to say like older brother, younger brother, obviously you would have the 
your dynamic with your younger brother. That's true. That's true. That's true. I'll give you that. And even if ba- even if Dexter gets taller, he's uh, Bailey's still the older brother, so he's going to have that mental like hold yeah. over him. You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> you know? I, I know I have an edge on him and we really shouldn't fight. But we play, you know, he's a kid. I'm like technically an adult, but we played basketball and he threw it at the back of my head and then I knocked <laughs> him down and, and, you know, he fell down. And I don't know. It happens all the time. Can't really help it. Shit happens. It's healthy. Yeah. That's <laughs> yeah. Part of that's healthy. Yeah. Uh, well, well, I want to bring up the other main character in this story, San Francisco. Yep. Yeah. Thank you yep. for going all over the city. Yeah. It was so yeah. great. Uh, you already mentioned Cafe Trias, but how did you pick the other businesses and locations you were going right. to? And what were some of the more difficult ones to shoot in during the? Uh, that's that's a that's a good question. Um, I you know I wanted to do the walk you know through the various areas that I thought sort of uh, you know showed San Francisco as kind of a fairy tale city and I wanted it to really be a character and like just like the suitcase is a character but I wanted mm-hmm. the city itself to be celebrated uh, as a you know a place you can take a journey like Don Quixote you know it makes sense you could take a journey and find yourself so that was one thing I also I'm really big on Italian neorealism and I'm actually teaching a class now and the reason why I'm teaching it is because of Sammy and Quinn because I really wanted Mm. to kind of follow the principles of Italian neorealism like shooting in the streets uh working with non-actors though my sons are actors well Dexter says he's not he's a ball player but he's good good actor so that was part of it like I wanted to be on location um and uh, so I picked places that I, you know, think are San Francisco, Little Italy, Chinatown, Financial District, uh, you know, um, I would say the hardest, the, hard, the hardest would have been like the city capitol hall there in the, in the quad. Mm-hmm. Right. There, was, there was a person that came up that wasn't a police officer uh, that kind of gave me some, some issues. So what you do in a situation like that, young filmmakers, you go, okay, I get it. And you wait, and then you go back and shoot, you know, <laughs> and you just keep waiting. Bam, bam. So, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a guerrilla filmmaker. I like that. I've made some bigger budget films, and I don't like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I like small units. I think it could be more intimate. And that's very much like Italian neorealism. Well, I have to appreciate uh, or tell you that I appreciated Tony's cable car because that's right down the street from me. And not a lot of people use that spot. And it's really it's really I think mm-hmm. it films great. Photo- and oh, yeah. Photography is great. I, I actually used that. I was one of the top directors for America's Most Wanted uh, for a while in the late 90s. And uh, I did a thing on uh, a, a guy named Callaway, all shot in San Francisco. And I did a telephoto shot way up at a Billy all on cable car it was, it oh, was good yeah love so it it was my first time what semi quiz the second time i used it got it yeah. well it's been a pleasure talking with you two i'm sure there's a lot more to dive into and that's like i said it's for bitch talk after hours but um the film is sammy and quinn we've been speaking with filmmaker christopher coppola and actor bailey coppola thank you so much for being on bitch talk we really appreciate it it's a, it's a pleasure If you like what you hear, rate and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about us, you can head to bitchtalkpodcast.com. This podcast is created, hosted, and executive produced by Aaron Lim. 
My co-host is Angela Tabora, a.k.a. Captain Party. The show's edited by producer Shar. We're powered by GoTo Productions. <laughs>